And uh, I'm, I'm happy to be with my people, my family, my family of faith. This has been quite a couple weeks. And uh, man, when things are going a little crazy uh, around us, uh, there is something very therapeutic about being with family. You know, in, in the Hebrew language, one of the meanings of the word household is therapy. It's therapy. We are the household of faith. Amen. And when we come together, we get to draw from the deep reservoir that God has put in each other. And uh, man, I've been feeling like I'm out of answers, out of explanations of sorts uh, to what is going on in our world. But I thank God that we have his word. I thank God that we have an advocate in the Holy Spirit. The word of God tells us that when we don't know how to pray, he helps us in our weakness. Amen. So I just want to wanna just kind of uh, alert you, first of all, I don't want to bury the lead, so to speak. Today, we are going to lay hands on our children. We're going to pray for our children. We're going to pray for our teachers. Those who serve in the education system. We're going to just sit with you all and, 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 and acknowledge what you may be feeling. I sent an email out yesterday. You might have received that. You know, as a 47-year-old man, it's been a long time since I've been in school. I'm trying to figure out, man, what is happening? How do we fix this? I want to imagine what a child is feeling, is experiencing. And if you have been, I don't know, uh, sheltered, not had the TV on, not picked up a you know, newspaper or got a notification on your phone about what I'm referring to. Um, specifically within the last week, I'm referring to the, the murder, the violent killing of uh, 17 students, 19 students and, and two teachers, so 21 people all together um, in Uvalde, Texas. Like, it's important, family, that we allow this horrific news not to escape us. Like, I know the temptation is like, I don't want to think about it. The temptation is, is, I don't have the answers, so, you know, let me just go over here and focus on what I can focus on. And I think that there's something righteous, there's something even healing and there's something that God does when we involve ourselves in the pain of others. We allow ourselves to sit with not having answers, not being able to explain it. We allow ourselves to lament and to feel the, the pain, to feel the, the awkward nature of, of not knowing what to do. Now, I'm not implying that we're helpless, so to speak. But what I am saying is, in our humanity, we don't have the answers. We don't have the answers. As we look at the national problem of gun control, and I can go down the list, we can look at even the issues in our own city. When you look at the neighborhoods, if you live in this city, or if you ride through this city, or if you... Pay attention to driving here. When you look at the neighborhoods, there are some things, there are a lot of great things that we can, we can acknowledge and say, wow, that's, that's beautiful, that's, that's great. But there are also things that we cannot ignore that are not great. And the reason why they are in the shape that they're in is there's, there's something behind it. Scripture tells us that the curse causeless shall not come. There's a reason why we see the, the, the level of abandonment and despair that we, that we can see. There's a reason behind it. And I pray and I hope that we don't allow ourselves to become desensitized to it. I hope that we don't become numb to it. I remember as a father, me and my wife decided to move 
into the city, moved back into the city. And one of the things that I became very aware of early on is that I wanted my sons, as we're driving through the streets of my city, to, to see how things are, to get an actual, realistic view of how things are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So again, there are things to acknowledge and to celebrate, but the, the, the ugly stuff, we can't ignore. And I wanted them to know as young men, like these, see this, son, see that? That's not the way this is supposed to be. There's a reason why that looks like that. And I remember in their young, their young minds would often, like, want to kind of come up with ideas on how we could fix it. <laughs> Particularly my, my son, Max, who was a junior at Howard studying architecture. <laughs> I love how God does these things and plants seeds. So there's something that God does in his people when he wires us. I believe, as Meg mentioned earlier, our intercession is not just prayers. And when we experience the kind of things we've experienced the last couple of weeks, even thinking about Buffalo, New York, we, we often offer a, just a quick, you know, thoughts and prayers. Please believe that our intercession always provokes us to act. Amen. I want to challenge you today, before we get into the bulk of the message and the meat of the message, is your faith working? Is your faith working? And what does that mean for you? Does it work for you? Working for you doesn't just mean all this chaos is going on around you and you just, you feel like you're just invincible, you're good. When our faith works, it not only does something to us, it does something through us. So the world around us can look different through the God who has placed his very spirit on the inside of his people. See, he fills his people with his glory and fills the earth with his people. So Detroit, you're full of the glory of God. You're full of the glory of God. The spirit of God lives on the inside of you. It indwells you if you have placed faith in Jesus. If you've repented for sin, given your life to him, made him the Lord of your life, the Spirit of God lives on the inside of you. As we take another week forward in this series on the book of Amos that we're calling Like a Good Neighbor, what we see here is a God that first of all speaks, God speaks to the affairs of the world. Secondly, he's the God of creation. Thirdly, he's the God of salvific history. And we took some time last week in, in unpacking that a little bit. And the idea is simply this, that God is not aloof to the affairs of man. He is not unbothered in the sense where he is not provoked. This is a very difficult book, I'll be honest with you. It's difficult, however, it's encouraging. It's difficult because it is a book of great judgment. God is seeing some very difficult things. It starts off in the, the first few verses that we're going to cover today. Some very difficult judgments on the Gentile nations. There's six of them. We're going to cover them all. Then he gets to Judah, his own people. Then he gets to Israel, his own people. And the bulk of the judgment is against Israel. Now, I want to ask you, do you consider yourself, just think about this for a minute, do you consider yourself a good neighbor? Matter of fact, just, you can feel free to throw some ideas out there, just talk back to me a little bit. What makes a good neighbor? You look off of them? Mm-hmm. Say it again. Hook up with them. Check up on them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Consider it. I heard something shouted out back there. You do they, you remove their snow? Yeah. I have a neighbor of mine. He's an elderly gentleman. And, like, sometimes he, he'll go out and take our garbage out. If, if one of us, me and my boys, are a little slow putting the garbage out, he'll go put it out for us. And, like, he started doing this some years ago. And, like, I started returning the favor. 
just learning from him. Like, what else? What makes a good neighbor to you? Checking on the family. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just say it. What up, though? Like, can we, like, acknowledge each other? Is that, are we too modern or too, like, just disinterested in, our, in people or just too busy to make eye contact or wave or speak? Watch each other's kids. Oh, he going to another level. See? <laughs> that, <laughs> but that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Like, I remember a day when we would call, my parents would call the neighbors if they were going to be gone and have the neighbors check on us at the house or vice versa. Or when we freely go in our neighbors' houses or go places, go places. The first time I actually went to a movie theater that I remember was with my neighbor. <laughs> we don't, thank you, Miles. That's, that's something we don't really do as much. So there's this idea here of, of God recognizing that what is, what is the reality of his people and the surrounding nations is not okay. And God, like a good neighbor, is provoked to move. He's provoked to anger. So he calls upon Amos. Amos is a shepherd, not just some lowly, uneducated, poor shepherd, so to speak. He's, he's more than likely a shepherd of shepherds, right? So he has some, he has some experience about himself. He has a level of, of respect even from the community. However, he's not an established prophet. He would not, in, in the sense of being classically trained and educated and recognized as a national prophet. That's not who he is. However, God gives him a word. God speaks to him and he, he feels the, 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 the brokenness and the pain and the wrath that God feels. And God allows him to feel and he reveals himself to Amos as this God of judgment who is not silent. And he opens up the book basically by saying, the Lord roars. Like his, his anger is, is kindled, it's stirred up. He's not okay with what is going on around. And before we get into the passage here, we're going to read this. Now, some of the language, it's, it's, it's different, it's older. Some of the words are difficult to pronounce. But I just want to ask you to bear with me as we sit with, with God's word Listen, it being difficult to announce makes it no less holy and necessary for us. Amen. So we want to grow in our, just our commitment, our discipline to sit with God's word. Sometimes even in the pulpit, we can be guilty of just skimming over quick passages because we're going to lose people's attention. And I think it's our attention that needs to be kind of stretched a little bit. Amen. Amen. So we're going to get into this Amos chapter 1. Verses 3. We're going to read the entire chapter, then we're going to read the first three verses of chapter 2. Now, I want to give you a couple context clues before we get into this. Because it'll help you maybe parse and understand what we have here in the text a little, a little better. The first thing is, we've already kind of established, God speaks. God speaks. And I want you to know, in case you, you know, are not aware of this, that not only does God speak, God still speaks. God speaks. He's speaking today. The primary way that he speaks, he speaks through his established word, right? But do you know that God also speaks to us today, here, now? He does. Amen. Amen. However, we see each of these what's called oracles. There are six nations and there are six oracles. And these are judgments against these surrounding nations. So remember, we're not talking about Judah or Israel. When you think of Judah or Israel, think of God's covenant people. Like his, his people, people, right? His family, those who have a, a special revelation of who he is. Those who he has been, uh, been carrying out the salvific history throughout their history. These first verses that we're going to read today, they're not to them. They are to the Gentile nations who many times in the scriptures we see as those who were living godless, those who were living very foul, those who were living not according to the way that God had ordained people to live and his people to live. So when we see these oracles, each one starts off with, thus says the Lord. Okay, so that's how you'll know. When you see that phrase, matter of fact, just say that with me. Say, thus says the Lord. Amen. The lion roars. The Lord is talking. 
All right, the second thing I want you just to keep in mind as we read this is his reason for speaking. He uses this phrase that's very common in some of the, the Hebrew uh, language and in idioms. He says, for three sins, even four. For three sins, even for four, okay? That's the reason. We'll unpack that a little bit later here. The third thing I want you to keep in mind and recognize here, uh, that there are one or two specific sins that are mentioned for each nation. One or two specific sins that are mentioned for each nation that he's addressing. And then the fourth thing that we're going to see in each of these six oracles is there's a judgment. There's a judgment. So again, God speaks. He gives a reason for his speaking for three sins, even for four, then he, he acknowledges or calls out some specific sins, one or two, and then he pronounces a judgment. Let's read. Verse three, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Heziel. And it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Evan. And him who holds the scepter from beth Aden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza... And for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send the fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions on the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour the, her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Amos chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the ruler from its midst and I will kill all his princes with him, says the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are holy. It is holy. Father, may we see you high and lifted up in your holiness and receive your word with meekness today, Father. I thank you that you can use even a broken vessel like me, God, to communicate your plan and your purpose. So I pray that hearts and minds are open and alert to what you would say to us, your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It may seem unfair at face value that God is coming against these people the way they are, meaning they're not God's covenant people, they're not a part of his chosen people, but God is saying some pretty harsh things to them. Like you ever looked at what is happening in the world or the culture around us and think like, yeah, well, you know, sinners sin. <laughs> That's what sinners do. You know, so should we be surprised? And it's not that God is surprised, but it is that he's not okay. 
He's not okay with how they're treating one another. What we see here is this this consistent act of rebellion. It's important because this word there for transgression, it actually means a rebellion, which is an intentional, willful disregard. This is not just some weakness that they stumble upon. They are a rebellious people. Now, what basis does, does God have? Like, he needs one. He's God. But what basis would we say that God has to hold them accountable for, for how they are behaving? What we see here, and this is a part of the, the, the development of salvific history that we briefly mentioned last week. This is a further development of the, the theme that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8. When it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So this gives us this idea, when you see the word nations, this speaks to the people outside of God's chosen people, Israel. This has to do with the Gentile nations who surrounded them. God gave them an inheritance. He gave them an inheritance. God had a purpose and a plan for them, get this, all along. All along. It says he he divided mankind. He established their borders. He gave them what they would need. We see the word three three sins, the the, the words three sins. Keep in mind this. It, It represents not just three specific sins. Three is a number of, of, of completion or fullness, but what it represents is, is three complete sins and for four. The fourth sin is not, again, a, numbered, a number of sins as much as it is, it is a tipping point where God is saying enough is enough. I've had enough, and now you will experience my judgment. Hmm. God wants them to know, like, I have limits. Like, I'm not okay with just you going on and treating people however you want to treat them for however long you want to treat them. This is an, an excess of, of, of depravity and, and sins. And God is saying enough is enough. It's gotten so bad, like the whole life of their existence has become corrupt. These are things that they're not just known for doing. It, it's it, it, things that they celebrate. <laughs> Things that they're, they're happy to be a part of how they behave and how they use people to get what they want. God is saying, I'm fed up with it. So really briefly, again, I want to just outline some specific things about these different oracles. Oracle against Syria, we see in verses 3 through 5. God specifically outlines, you've been rebellious against me. Treating people like they're things. You have a basic disregard for human life. (laughs) He uses this word, the prophet Amos, where they they are threshing people. They're, They're threshing people with these planks, so to speak, these threshing planks that had iron teeth. And it was used, it was to be used like for agriculture. He's, now, we don't know if this is metaphorical or if it's, if it's literal. However, either way, they're treating people like they're things with a disregard for human life. Like, that's not okay. When we consider what God has gone through to place his image in people, what God has gone through to send his son to the earth to die for us to treat people like they're objects when we can do whatever we want with them to get what we want God says it's it's not okay this is a disregard for human life (sighs) next the oracle against Philistia they were guilty get this of not just trafficking individuals they were trafficking entire communities slave trading Valuing wealth over people. Just wholesale kidnapping. 
so that they could turn a profit, so that basically they can get what they want. God says enough is enough. Their ambition and desire for wealth led them to like overlook or just flat out dismiss the most basic human element. Dignity and safety for every person. Well, God says, I'm going to cause the walls of your five major cities to fall. I'm going to cause your military fortresses to crumble. And the way you exist now, you will, you will no longer exist. God is fed up. The next oracle against Phoenicia in verses 9 through 10. They're guilty of breaking covenant. They're guilty of, of this inhumane rage and again a disregard for human life and and what some commentators would, would espouse is they seem to be maybe some sort of middleman of sorts in the human trafficking brokering the capturing of people to the highest bidder they didn't they were not accused of 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 trafficking themselves but they were involved so no less guilty of using people, again, to turn a profit. And what's interesting, what's, what's not just interesting, what is, what is just awful about this is the very people that they are bargaining to sell are the very people that they actually have a political treaty with. <laughs> so the ones that they've gone into an agreement with, they're selling as slaves. They have a disregard of this treaty. The scripture says a, a treaty of brotherhood. So what does God say? God says, I'm going to bring the walls of your city down. I'm going to cause your fortified places, your fortified fortresses to basically go up in flames. Enough is enough. The oracle against Edom in verse 11 and 12. They're, they've also been found guilty of trafficking Entire communities, slave trading, valuing wealth over people. And what we know about Edom, these people are the descendants of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. They have a, a deep relationship that goes back generations with these people. They have a, a blood kinship brotherhood, so to speak. Like to the Hebrew people, that was a big deal. There are these obligations that they have of, of kinship. That by virtue of the proximity of their relationship, they were obligated to love and to care for one another. However, they disregarded that. Instead, they're chasing their kinsmen, their brothers with swords, having no compassion whatsoever. Continually exhibiting this, this attitude of, of insatiable rage. God says, I'm going to destroy your two main cities removing your military and your economic operations because enough is enough. Oracle against Amen, verses 13 through 15. They've been found guilty of valuing, valuing wealth and territorial advancement over people. Found guilty of slaughtering the unborn. Found guilty of slaughtering women. They were massacring. They, they were known for, for showing you how to massacre communities well. How to kill babies well. How to kill women the best way. And they were proud of it. Such merciless inhumanity. Kindled the anger of God. He's outraged. God says the day of the Lord is going to come upon you. I'm going to execute my wrath. And the same humiliation that you've shown, you're now going to experience. You're now going to know what it means to be powerless and at the mercy of others. Thus says the Lord. God ain't playing because enough is enough. The last oracle against Moab. They have a disregard for the living and for the dead. Continued culture of rebellious acts against God. They burned the bones of the king of Edom in this act of desecration. And what they, like they didn't stop there. They used his bones to plaster the walls of their houses. What? God says, your military forces are going to burn. Your, your temples of worship I'm going to destroy. And you're going to be defeated. And I'm going to see to it. 
like family. These are the Gentile nations. These are the people who, who surround the nations of Israel and Judah. Now you may say again, like how, like man, like how could they have that kind of response from God because they didn't have him. Like did they have the, the law? They didn't have the Ten Commandments that we know that God gave Moses for the children of Israel to kind of govern them and lead them. However, what we see here, again, Deuteronomy 32 gives us a glimpse of this, but also in Romans 2, that the moral law is written on all human hearts, on everyone's heart. Even if they're not privy to a specific or special revelation, our conscience dictates right and wrong. Our conscience dictates that, that every human is worthy of kindness and respect. That we can't treat people as mere property. Their conscience knows this even if it's ignored, even if it's not practiced. They know right from wrong. Romans chapter 2 verse 14, the apostle Paul writes, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Wow. Now, let me also make clear that these specific nations who are receiving these oracles and these judgments do not apply. Again, do not apply to any modern Middle Eastern nation today. Can we be clear about that? Amen. But what they do is they give us a little insight concerning like the broad principles of what, how God evaluates human behavior, governmental policies, and acts that are oppressive and inhumane. It gives us a glimpse of how God feels about it and what God will do in response to it. Please know that God is not just the Lord of the chosen people. He's the Lord of all nations. He's the Lord of every human life. May sound simple, but it's fundamental and, and extremely important. He's not just the God of his, the chosen people. He's the Lord of all nations. And I love how God is saying, I'm the one that's going to cause this judgment to come about you. Over and over again, he says, I will break. I will strike. Again, there's six oracles. Six different times God says, I will send a fire. Go read it. I'm going to send a fire. So the, the, the overall emphasis here is that, listen, God ain't playing. God is at work in history and his hand is present, family. Mm. Listen, these are specific examples for us of how God is, is concerned again but not like idly concerned. He's at work. He's at work. When we talk about the Gentile nations that surround Israel, I want to make what I think is obvious, but maybe it's not so obvious in the political climate that we live in today, in the, this is Memorial Day weekend, um, in the patriotism that much of our country represents and likes to espouse this even I'll, I'll say the phrase American exceptionalism and that we're it listen Jesus is the hope of the world <laughs> Jesus has called his church through him to be the hope of the world not America not America so when I look at the Gentile nations what I consider as a part of that Example and metaphor is America. America is not Israel. And that may seem very clear to some of us. However, if you're paying attention to some of the conversations, some of the ideas that are being spread, some of the, the convictions even by the church, we treat America as if it's the church, as if it's on the same level. Please believe this. God himself is not standing by idly while America has been found guilty of some of the same crimes. 
America will pay. That is a message that does not get a lot of amens. I don't say that like with a sense of haughtiness or even celebration. What I celebrate is the hand of God. So I'm not saying don't clap. You can clap. Let's make sure we're clapping for the fact that God is near the brokenhearted. He's not aloof. He recognizes the parents that have to buy caskets for children that have been senselessly murdered. God knows it and he feels it. He also feels the, the, the response that comes alongside of those, those heinous murders. He feels the, the, the feelings that those other children who maybe weren't there, maybe who don't live in that city or go that, to that school, however they go to schools all over the country, maybe even all over the world, and what they're feeling. Maybe the fear that the enemy is, is, is using to, to cause them to be crippled, to cause them to, to maybe even give up on God. Please hear this. God has levels. Like levels of helplessness matter to God. Levels of helplessness matter to God. So the fact that these children and children all over the world are hearing these reports and are seeing these these political games play out where even our children as used as pawns, so to speak, to further our own political aspirations. God forbid. God forbid. Listen, we can look at what's happened down in, in Uvalde, Texas. We can look at other countries. I was talking to my barber just yesterday, and she is from Haiti. And she was telling me for some years now, Haiti does not have public education. Haiti does not have public transit. Haiti only has working electricity in a few communities. It's just, it's, I can't even fathom my mind around that. There are some private systems of education that are very expensive. So only a certain elite a level of people can afford it themselves and then there are a few scholarships where they allow others to come in. Some churches have tried to come in and make a difference but still there's so many communities and communities of children who don't have working electricity, can't get where they need to go and they're not being educated. And the, while the, 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 uh, the leader of the nation of Haiti is actually living in Miami. <laughs> he lives in Miami. He's a, a music artist. Living his best life in South Miami. Like, and this isn't new. We're talking generations and generations of, of corrupt leadership. And there's a whole lot more to that story. We can talk about what's happening again in, 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 in Uvalde, Texas, or what's happening in Haiti. We can also talk about what's happening right here in our city. In our very own city. A school not too far from here, a young person was, was, was caught on camera with a gun in the classroom flashing the gun. Now, I'm talking about the hood now. I'm talking about my neighborhoods right now. Like, are we so well adjusted to the, the level of depravity that we just, like, overlook it? I hope that we can, we can not only see what's happening other places, but that we can allow ourselves and allow our conscience to not be seared by the things that are happening in our own backyard. And the, the affected or moved conscious must be motivated to respond and to act, not just offer thoughts and prayers. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'm winding down and we're going to bring the kids up. We're going to pray. If anyone here is concerned that Pastor Sonny or any church leadership or pastors or whoever are talking about these kinds of issues from the pulpit are, are espousing or practicing a social gospel of, of sorts, let me help you really, really quickly here. This is not a social gospel. However, it is a beautiful arrangement and display of the, the fruit, the social fruit, the ethical fruit that flows out of the gospel. So we don't do these things to like earn brownie points with God so that we can be saved, right? We do these things because 
we are saved. And because we are, we've been born again and we're called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Any light in here? Any salt in here? Let's go. Let's go. It's time we, church, are fed up like our God. Mm. He's near the brokenhearted. He's a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. So Amos here is, is exposing the, the evil and the cruelty of the present world, which in a beautiful way is going to juxtapose and highlight the beauty of the new world that is to come. Amos goes off for about nine books and towards the end of chapter of nine chapters towards the end of chapter nine he gives us this this hope of the new world this beauty of how God is going to make all things new and all things beautiful we'll get there what I want you to understand keep in mind here there are two things that every person has inherited simply by virtue of their birth Two things every person has inherited. One, the image of God. Two, the nature of sin. One, the image of God. Two, the sin nature. Listen, that cannot be undone. However, one of them, only one of them, is incurable. <laughs> only one is incurable. I'm going to say that again two things that every single person has inherited by virtue of their birth. The image of God, the nature of sin. That can't be undone, but one of them, only one of them is incurable. Now, what does that mean for us? As we look at the depravity of our world, as we look at the corruption, like we must understand the role that sin plays and how the image of God speaks to every facet of our world. We must understand that. Do you know that before the fall happened, Adam and Eve were already created in the image of God? Before sin had a chance to enter in, God had already declared that they were formed and made in his image. Now we understand that because of sin, that that, that image has, has been, been marred of sorts, right? There's been a misinterpretation of that image. That image is, is, is not always lived out or fully understood, However, consciousness is a God-given faculty. And it is part of the image of God in man and women. Like every other aspect of his image, we recognize that it's been tampered with. We recognize that as soon as human nature gives room to rebellion against God, there must be consequences. So we're not saying that all that can just be excused. However, we must recognize where God starts and how God would have us respond to the evil around us. And let me just throw this out there. Perhaps the greatest and maybe even more heinous crime being committed is the silencing of our conscience while these acts of violence are taking place around us. Is that not the greater crime? For us to keep our heads down in our Bible? or logging on to our prayer calls, or coming to the house of worship, hearing a word, singing some songs, going back into our four corners. <sighs> Jeremiah 6, 14, the Lord declares, they offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They give assurances of peace where there is no peace. Like we've been called to intercede and to intervene. From the hood to the suburb. From the trap house to the White House, we're all guilty. From the, the code of the streets to the legislation of our laws and, and the ruling of the courts. It's all backwards. It's backwards. I don't, listen, I stand here with a relative indifference to your political persuasion. I'm not interested in your partisan affiliation. Matter of fact, this, like even if your convictions are just a result of your political influence, does not matter. I want to declare to you that we're all guilty. 
Republicans pointing at Democrats like they're the problem. Democrats pointing at Republicans while we ignore the dead bodies piling up in the, in the, the closet of our consciousness. God forbid, enough is enough. What have we become when we use certain words, certain buzzwords politically, like gun control, like abortion, like same-sex marriage, and we affiliate those things with the political party? Like we allow ourselves to be caught up in the, the, the quagmire of these political conversations, and we... We, we relinquish our, our spiritual influence and place in the world as, as the sons and daughters of God, as intercessors. God forbid. Are we not guilty of the same kind of devaluing of human life when we allow ourselves to, to fall into that? Listen, we're all guilty. I don't care where you stand on, the, on, any, on the, any, either of those political persuasions. We're all guilty. Like Amos, church, we have to be aware of what is happening around us in our world and articulate the heart of God in response to what is happening. We have to articulate it. We have to talk about it. We have to go into the, the public square where people are. I'm not talking about the pulpit at Hope. I'm talking about the pulpit of where you do business. I'm talking about your neighborhood. Like how are you using your citizenship from heaven, your kingdom influence to connect to hearts that all they're seeing are, are CNN reports, Fox News reports, or social media accounts reports. Listen, I thank God for some of the voices that are out there, but we have to do a better job, church, of recognizing where we get our orders from as kingdom citizens. And not, not allow our stuff to be stained by the foolishness of this world. I ask you, what value does our society or even us as individuals really place on human life? Both the unborn and the born. What value, how about this, does the church, what value does the church place on human life? Are we okay while people and systems are allowed to take advantage of others? Are we okay with that? Do nothing to stop them? Are we okay with that? Do the unborn have a right to life and protection from the selfish decisions of adults, people? Do the born not have the right and the basic privilege of having basic normal resources provided for them for life? Do they not deserve the common basic dignity of every human in affirming that they are created in the image of God? <sighs> Politically, what laws need to be changed and what additional social services need to be provided to ensure that the sacred status and dignity of each person is honored and dignified. See, listen, Amos is not just preaching. He wants to change the way people think. He's not preaching to get them excited or to get an amen. Let me tell you this. He ain't getting no amens here. Well, let me take that back. Let me take that back. <laughs> Amos is actually setting them up. Like I mentioned before, the bulk of this book is an oracle and a judgment pronounced on God's own people. So what Amos is doing, he's highlighting the sins of the godless nations around them so that they can get, they can amen him. They can get riled up and say, that's right. God, get him. God, burn the cities up. God, send your fire. God, send the wind to destroy them. Amen, amen. However, Amos is setting them up because what God is really about to do is go off on them and hold them accountable. We'll get into that next week. When God starts going off on them, that's when there are no amens. However, they're quick to look at the person across the street, the neighboring nation, and call out their atrocities. 
I want to ask you, what is your example? What is our example of a good neighbor? It's the good neighbor himself, capital G, capital N, the Lord Jesus. John 1, 14, the message version says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Ah, let's go. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. This is our example of what it means to be a good neighbor. He moved into the neighborhood, and he feels our pain and our sorrow. I want every child in here to know that God loves you, God sees you, God hears you. He sees every tear. He understands every fear. He understands. He has not left you alone. He's with you. And if God is with you, that is more than anything else in the world that is against you. I want to invite our kids to come up. We're going to pray. I'm going to lay hands on you. I'm going to ask one of our elders, Don, come on up. My wife, Sharita, uh, Megan, Deli. Um, we wanted to create some space just to acknowledge um, and step into what our children may be feeling. My children, I mean, Detroit kids' age children also mean young Detroit. If there's some college students here that are struggling we're here for you as well we simply want to pray with you lay hands on you I'm going to ask you to come on up I see a lot of kids in here nobody's moving Father you're faithful to the very end we bless your name God we exalt you exalt you we exalt you Father Jesus said to suffer the little children let them come if we want to enter the kingdom of God then we must be like one of them so I'm just going to I'm asking you, our leaders if you could just kind of maybe pray in clusters we do have some anointing oil um, Nate can you bring that over Parents, we want to anoint our children with oil. Listen, this oil, there's nothing magical about this. This is simply symbolic, but we see it um, example in the scriptures as a, as a point of contact, right? So we don't believe in this, this oil per se. We believe in the power of God. And God has put his spirit in each of us, even our children. So, Don, I'm put a little bit of that in your hand. If you could just rub that together. Sharita. Thank you, Father. God, we thank you, Father, for your protection. Your plan is perfect for our children, God. We declare your grace over them in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, would you protect every heart, God, every mind in the name of Jesus. Father, you're faithful. You are faithful. Bless your name, Jesus. Bless your name, Jesus. Thank you, Father. As we lay hands upon our children, Father, we declare that they belong to you. That they belong to you. We recognize, God, the depravity and the brokenness of our culture, of our educational system. Father, we recognize that there's fear in the streets even. Father, we do not stand here today with all of the answers. However, we do stand here with aid from above. We do stand, Father, with a, a, a covenant with you, God, that we as your people are called by you to represent you in the earth. And Father, we pray every child here 
is growing in their understanding of who you are, of your purpose and your plan for them. And that they understand, God, that they've been bought with a price. By the precious blood of Jesus, their lives have been purchased. And Father, we declare that through every circumstance, every mountain experience, every valley experience, every situation, every challenge, God, that our lives are sheltered by you, that we are hidden in Christ, and that whatever comes to us, Father, you are using as fuel to advance your plan. Father, you are using for your glory. So, Father, we announce today that our kids are here for your glory, God, for your glory. Father, we declare today that they belong to you, Father. They belong to you, God. Father, we speak your word over the, the victims of the massacre in Uvalde, Texas, Father. We speak your word over those families, God, that are mourning, that are suffering, God, that are trying to make sense, God. Father, we pray that you draw near to them, God, in ways like they've never seen before. Father, I pray that they would experience your presence, God, that they would experience your love beyond comprehension. Father, we thank you that you provide a peace that your word says surpasses understanding. We thank you that you are not a God that is far off, but you are near the brokenhearted. So we pray for healing, God, emotional healing right now in the name of Jesus. Father, we pray, God, that you will sustain them by your spirit, God, to deal with the effects of, of trauma, the effects of what they've seen. The repetitive news reports the crippling fear of the unknown. God, we thank you that there was a healing bomb in Gilead and there was a covenant, God, that you make with your people, Father. And you are not silent. So we pray, Father, that justice would roll down, God, that the lion would roar. And that not only would you bring healing to the hearts of those who are hurting, but, but raise up your people, God, that, that, that have solutions in the, in the realm of politics. Raise up politicians, Father. Raise up those that can call out the broken systems and give us ideas, God. Give us strategies from heaven like Joseph and like Daniel, God, we pray. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you sent us your son who came as a child. Father, from the very beginning, we see the plot of the wicked one to take out the seed of the righteous. We declare today that these young people belong to you. They belong to you. They belong to you. So we cover them right now in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. I want to also create some space to pray for our teachers. So if there are any educators here can we pray for you can we lay hands on you as well as they come I'm going to invite Delhi our prayer coordinator up um, I was encouraged by what Pastor Sonny shared and I sat here and I started to write a quick poem for the kids and um, for us adults it says children children bloom bloom even when you feel like you're a flower pressing through a crack in the cement. So much pressure. It can be so intense, even scary at times. But my God has called you to bloom like a beautiful flower. And he commands us to make sure it happens. So we love you. God, I just pray for... Um, our teachers, the us, the ones he, he's commanded children to do things, but we have a, a responsibility to them, to raise them up in the truth, to guard them and protect them. And in some ways for teachers, that has looked real, real this, these past few years, God. Protection has looked not just stopping fights in the classroom, but it has been acting as shields at time and putting their bodies in places to prevent things from happening, thinking quickly, God. So I pray for our teachers right now in the name of Jesus. I pray that they will be empowered by your spirit to know that they are in the right place, that this, it, it will, it is heavy. 
and you are with them. You have not forgotten them. You, When you called them to go and get these degrees and certificates to be in the classroom, you knew this was coming. And so, God, I pray that they would not question their life decisions in this season. We desperately need them. We acknowledge that we live in a country that does not value what they bring. And so we repent. We repent even for underpayment, undervaluing, not listening to their voices, not caring about what they have to say. The many times that teachers have cried out for safety. The many times that teachers have said, this door won't lock. The many times the teachers have said, I need rest. The many times the teachers have said, there's too many students. I cannot do my job well. I can't care for them. God, we repent that we have not heard them. And I pray for a Holy Spirit empowerment that you would move in the school systems. You would move in the buildings. You would move in our cities and streets. And I pray that you will begin to, there will be a rumbling, that there will be a change. God, that there will be action that comes out of, of this church, of communities around this city, around this nation, that we will not leave our teachers on the front lines, that we will not leave them out there to fight the battles by themselves, God. I pray that we as a nation, as a people of God, will come around our teachers, that the parents and teachers will work together, that parents and principals will work together, that we would do as you've commanded us to, to ensure that our children bloom through the cement like flowers, that we even break up the cement that's being poured over them and allowing them not to grow. God, we command a change. Wake up the church in the name of Jesus. We must wake up and respond to the work of God. We will no longer resist your move. We will no longer abide only by partisan, by size, God, but we resist the work of the enemy trying to rip up the families, rip up your family, rip up our students' lives and futures, and we speak that we will, uh, we will stand side by side with these teachers. They will no longer be in the front by themselves, God. We will stand with them. We will lock arms with them. By your spirit, move, God. Let us be those that move with you. God, let it begin in this house. Show us what to do in this house. Show us how to lock arms in this house. In the name. Father, I thank you that your banner over us is love. I thank you that your banner over us is love. Father, I thank you that you are our bulwark. You are our rear God. You are our protection, Lord. I thank you. Your word tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. Father God, we cast down imaginations and every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of Christ. Let Christ be exalted, oh God. I thank you, Lord, that Christ is exalted in these teachers, God, in these administrators, God, in these children and their families, Lord. I thank you that Christ is exalted. I thank you, Lord God that you've given us mighty weapons to the pulling down of strongholds. Father, forgive us for our lethargy. Father, for our prayerlessness. Father, for not answering when you call us in the midnight hour, God. But I pray, Lord God, that you, God, by your spirit would remind us of who we are and what it is that you have called us to do, Lord. Father, let us take up our mantle of intercession, God. Let us take up, Lord God, the spiritual armor that you have given us. Father, whereby where, when, when we've done all that we know to do, we can continue to stand and stand therefore, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we are sought and light. Father, that, that, that humanity is preserved by our presence. Help us to remember that, that we're not here just by happenstance to pass the time of day, but God, you have us in the earth. Father, to bring light into darkness, God. And Father, to preserve, remind us, God, remind us of who we are and help us, Lord God, to stand to stand on your name and in the power of your word. Father, we thank you for the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Hallelujah, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. 
Holy Spirit, we thank you that you fill us and you indwell us. Father, you fill and indwell our children. God, we thank you. We thank you today that we will not be crippled by fear. The Lord is our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear and of whom shall we be afraid? You are our confidence. You are our portion. We declare your sovereignty. We declare your majesty. We exalt you, O King. We exalt you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come on, somebody declare amen. Amen and amen. Yes and amen. So be it. We are in agreement. Now I charge you to go be the light of the world. Go and be the salt of the earth. Shine in the midst of darkness. Preserve where there is decay in our culture and in our world. Listen, your neighborhood will never be the same because you're there. Not because you're the answer. No, you're not the vine. You're just a branch connected to the vine, the source of life. Amen. And he is our righteousness. So I pray that you can take the weight of this not only to your homes, to your block, to your schools, even to your jobs. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.